you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Titus. Titus is in the New Testament. It's a pastoral epistle. And uh, last week we began looking at the epistle of Titus as Paul writes to Titus, a young disciple, one whom he himself has led to faith in Christ. And in writing to Titus, he's encouraging him on the island of Crete. Crete's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And there have been uh, there have been churches that were planted and they were in need of godly leadership within the congregation, uh, within each congregation in each town. And so this morning, this morning, I want us to look at chapter one, verses five through 16 of Titus. But before we do, let us pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning. May you open our eyes to the truth of your word. And Lord, may you incline our hearts to your heart in this text. Oh God, may you strengthen each of us this morning to be godly men and women. Men and women who pursue your righteousness and and pursue a life that is evidenced to others that you've changed us. And so we pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning. And Lord, that you would cause our hearts to love your word and that you would strengthen us to live faithfully following after you for your good or for our good, rather, and for your glory. And so I pray, Father, that you would be exalted in our midst this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart this morning would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can you fill in the blank for the title? Searching for a few good men. Is that what you said? Is that what you said? Good men? Yeah. That's not the blank in the title. But it's close. Have you ever wondered where that phrase, a few good men, came from? Marines. Yeah, it certainly was their slogan. But it even predates the Marine Corps. The United States Marine Corps has been using that slogan now for the last 200 years. We're looking for a few good men was the slogan. It began in 1779 when Captain William Jones advertised for a few good men to enlist in the Marine Corps, thinking that that was all he would need. And so as word began to travel about this challenge, young men be, began to say, I, I, are, are you going to accept the challenge? Are you one of the good men that, that the Marine Corps is looking for? Are you one of the few good men that could serve in the Marine Corps? And this morning, as we look at this text, I think what we see Paul saying is not that he's looking for a few good men, but a few godly men. That's what he's saying in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And so beginning in verse 5, I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The theme of our text this morning, as Mr. Al said earlier, is Growing in godliness. I want to ask you a question as we approach the text this morning. When you hear the word elder in the context of a church, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Old, someone said? White hair? You know, being an older man or or maybe even having gray hair, those are characterizations that are not necessarily wrong of an elder but they're incomplete. It's an incomplete understanding. The first thing we think of is a physical characteristic, our, our age of, of what an elder may look like or, or, or what, what place in life the elder might be in. But in this text this morning, Paul gives us God's standard for elders who lead his church. And the chief characteristic in the life of an elder is godliness. But I want you to know that Scripture doesn't hold a different standard of godliness for elders and for congregational members. There's the same standard that Scripture puts forth that God expects and desires out of His people. He expects godliness in the life of each believer, each disciple of Christ. And He also expects godliness in the life of elders, overseers within the congregation. So this morning, I I want our lives to be affected in this way. I I want our lives, each of our lives, to be biblical portraits of godliness. Showing others what living in Christ looks like when we've been transformed by grace. And so this morning, minimally, if if you're equipped in only one way, and that is with, with a better understanding of how to pray for your elders... I would be exceedingly joyful, and so would our other elders here at Cross Point. But my prayer this morning is for much more than that. My prayer this morning for each of us is that we would be challenged to see God's gracious work in the lives of others, but also in our own lives in shaping us and forming us into godliness through the transforming power of the gospel. And so this morning... I pray that each of us are being transformed by the gospel 
And specifically this morning, I pray that, that there will be some men here who sense a calling, are being called out, are, are prompted to a greater responsibility, as the text says, as God's steward among his house or within his house, overseers, elders within the church. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Secondly, I pray for women, for single women, for, for wives. I pray that you'll notice these men within our congregation, particularly if one of them is your husband. And I pray that you will pray for them. And that, wives, you, you'll pray for your own openness and support to the possibility of your husband being an elder within the church. But I also pray for all women to see what's held up as God's standard for godliness in the life of his people and to see that as, as, as foundational for their own lives, for each of our lives. And then thirdly, I pray for the children that are here this morning, that they would hear and see how the gospel changes people, even within their own homes, when they look at mom and dad, that they would see that the gospel is doing this work of transforming and changing us and causing us to see God's godly standard in the life of his people. And that because of that, the Holy Spirit would use that testimony within their home to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and to open their mouths so that they might make the confession of faith and trust in Christ as Savior. So that's how I've been praying this week as we approach this text because this text really is heavy on laying out the standards for godly leadership within the church, for elders, for overseers. And so verse 5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, Titus. Paul is telling him, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I just want to give you five quick observations, four quick observations from verse 5. And they're quick, so, so write fast. First, an elder and an overseer, as we see in this passage of Scripture, is the same office in the New Testament. They're different titles, but they're the same office. Secondly, we see that each church is to have a team, or what we call a plurality of Elders of overseers. It's not just in this text, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul speaks in his introduction with, with the overseers, plural, and deacons. James 5.14, James instructs those who are sick to call upon the elders of the church, and they'll come and they'll anoint with oil and pray. And so, so this, this idea of plurality of elders is seen in multiple places within the New Testament, and that's why we have employed it. We, we have it here as our church polity. Thirdly, the main function of elders is to care for God's people. That's seen through teaching and, 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 and through guarding and through leading the flock to feed in the pasture of God's word. And then fourthly, I think what we see in verses 5 through 9 is really this idea of election of elders or overseers. That is, there's a corporate or congregational responsibility for the church in electing or selecting these men who are held up as elders and overseers within the body of Christ. And we see that specifically because they are called to notice the blamelessness of each one's life. And so Paul's clear regarding elders. An elder's life is to be worthy of imitation. 
and it should radiate the gospel. So in verse 5, Paul instructs Titus to appoint those who are in the churches of Crete as elders and overseers in each church within every town. And so I want us to see two points regarding elders this morning. The first deals with who they are, and the second deals with what they do. And so first, looking at who they are, we see that elders serve as models of godliness in verses 6 through 9. That's who they are. God has called elders to serve as models of godliness. And he says in verse 6, they are to be above reproach. In fact, he says that two times. He says it in verse 6, and then he also says it in verse 7. For an overseer is God's stewards to be above reproach. This phrase speaks to the expectation of godliness in the life of a leader within the congregation. Being above reproach means to be blameless. But hear me out, it doesn't mean to be without blemish. It doesn't mean to be perfect. But it does mean to be blameless. It means to be one who who in his life is faithful in living for God. One whom others have no reason to accuse of his living and his faith being inconsistent or incompatible with one another. Ultimately, in verses 6 through 9, Paul says that elders are to be examples to the church through their blameless conduct. And they're proving that the gospel produces godliness in the lives of Christ's followers. Elders then are to be concerned, overseers are to be concerned with the example they set before others. So this is why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in these things, for by so doing, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for your hearers. And so here's what Paul does. He identifies three areas where blamelessness counts in the life of God's people, especially in the life of elders and overseers. The first one is marriage and family. In verse 6, we see it. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers. This marriage and family, is, it's, it's important for the elder, even for believers, to have blamelessness in this area of their lives. Literally, the text says, oh, one wife or one woman, man. And it speaks of marital fidelity and of, of sexual purity. Paul isn't saying that marriage is a qualification for eldership in the same way that he's not saying that Uh, Being a parent is a qualification for eldership. But what he is saying is those who are married, that a healthy marital relationship is necessary. And that a man's marriage to a woman, and a woman's marriage to a man, but a man's marriage to a woman must be characterized by love, by commitment, and by devotion to the one woman, to his wife. His relationship with his wife must be characterized by the phrase above reproach, blameless. He must not be one who's flirtatious with other women. He must not be one who's given to pornography. His relationship to his wife must be pure and undefiled. But not only do we see that in marriage, we see it in in the home. As a parent over, over children, it says children are to be believers. 
There's been much debate about that very phrase and how that qualifies or disqualifies a man. But most English translations use the word believer to describe children in this verse. But the adjective used here in verse 6, it's the same one that's used in verse 9 to speak of the trustworthy word, and it literally means to be faithful. And so Paul's commenting on the conduct and the behavior of children, not their conversion. So children are to be faithful. In other words, as he continues in the verse, they're not to be open to the charge of debauchery or of insubordination. And so debauchery meaning wild living and insubordination meaning that they are in defiance and disobedience. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. There's a participle in the Greek text. I know that's a little technical, but most modern translations don't translate that either in verse 6. And the Greek text literally says, having children who are faithful. And that having, it, it refers to authority in the sense that those children are under the authority of the man, of the father in the home. And as long as they are under that authority, what is to characterize their lives is faithfulness. They're to be faithful. And I think there's a lesson that we all as parents need to hear and learn in a truth that we must learn The way that we shape our children's behavior isn't through law, but it's through cultivating their hearts. We we do this by modeling love for Christ and living and teaching the gospel in our homes. And so the elder must be a man who's characterized as a one woman man, a man who's faithful in his marriage and has children who are faithful as well. There's a second area of blamelessness. And that second area concerns his conduct and his character. See this in verses 7 and 8. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Right? He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. The elder is called overseer here in this verse, but it's... It's the same office, as we said earlier, just with a different title. But it highlights his role of oversight as God's steward. You see that? An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Steward, in the New Testament, is a compound word. And it means house manager. And so here's here's what he's saying. So in order to be a a manager of God's house, he must live a life that's above reproach. His life must not be characterized by these five vices that are listed there in verse 7. He's not arrogant. I'll just give you a one-word definition for these vices, just so that we're all on the same page of understanding what does not characterize an elder and then what should characterize an elder first he's not arrogant meaning he's not self-willed in other words he's teachable he's willing to listen to others he's genuinely and graciously hearing people out not thinking he's got it all figured out yet but he's humble he's he's approachable he's not quick-tempered he's not inclined to anger not contentious In other words, he has a peaceable spirit. 
And then he's not a drunkard. He literally meaning he's not one who's addicted to wine or alcohol. He must not be mastered by anything other than Christ. He's not violent. Some translations use the word there pugnacious. He's not violent. He's not a bully. He's not harsh. He's not abrasive. In other words, he's, he's approachable. He's not given a physical or, or psychological bullying. He's gentle. He's compassionate. And he's not greedy for gain. This would be translated, understood to mean he doesn't have a love for, isn't greedy for money. Conversely, his life must be characterized, as we see in verse 8, by six virtues. And those six virtues will just do the same. He is to be hospitable. That's a compound word meaning loving the stranger. And so, in other words, he's to open his home to others, to those within the community of faith, but also those that, that aren't part of the community of faith. He's opening his home. He's hospitable. He's a lover of good, meaning he's to be compassionate about those things which are God's things. He's to be charitable in his dealings with others. He loves that which is true and right. He's to be self-controlled. Meaning wise and sensible. He's, he's one who masters self. He's not mastered by the flesh. Instead, he's mastered by God. And he's able to withstand temptation to be mastered by anything other than God. He's called to be upright. Upright is the root word for righteousness. It's the root word for for justice. And this is one who stands for that which is right, that which is true, and he protects the flock of God, and he takes a stand for for the, the, the weak, the underprivileged, even within society. He's to be holy, which means pure and devout. It describes the attitude that he has toward Christ and his pursuit of God. And finally, he is to be disciplined. This could sum up all of what we have just said. He is to be specifically restrained and disciplined within his life. And with respect to his life and his approach to all things, he is to be disciplined. These give us a portrait of one who models godliness. And one who's being transformed by the gospel. And so remember, we don't equate above reproach or blameless with perfection or without blemish. But it simply speaks to the portrait of what godliness looks like in the life of an elder and what God expects or desires, rather, of his people, of his elders, of his overseers. The third area of blamelessness that we see in the text is in verse 9. And it's with devotion to the word. In verse 9, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the picture of one who's clutching tightly, he's hanging on for life. His belief is upon the word. His interaction is with the word. And his life is grounded in the word. Because he knows it to be the trustworthy word there in verse 9. As taught. And he knows that this word is able to do something. 
What is this word? This word is that which is given by the apostles and by Christ and has been handed down to us in the New Testament. He knows the word, and because he knows the word, he's able to stand, and he's able to teach, and he's able to rebuke others who contradict the word. In fact, the word in the New Testament for able, it's the word for power. So in other words, he's enabled to do these things by the word. He stands on the authority of the word, and the word enables him to do two things according to verse 9. Number one, to give instruction and sound doctrine. And number two, to, to rebuke those who contradict it. So brothers and sisters, let me just let me pause for a minute and make sure that we're tracking here to understand that while this is what God desires and expects of his of his leaders within the congregation, isn't it what God desires and expects of of all of his children, of each of us? That we would each have a pursuit of godliness in our lives? That we would each be pursuing to learn sound doctrine, to be instructed in sound doctrine? So the elder is able, he's powerful, he's able, enabled, to stand on God's word and to give instruction in sound doctrine. This really gets at the quality of one quality specifically that distinguishes the office of elder from deacon. That is that he's apt to teach. He instructs the church with sound teaching or sound doctrine. As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, guard yourself and your teaching doctrine for by doing you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you this is why the elder must be a man who is grounded in the word he's to be a man of the word who leads the church to be a people of the word and secondly he's to rebuke those who contradict the word by standing on the authority of the word He can rebuke those who are in error, who are in contradiction of the word. And listen, by knowing and teaching the truth of the word, he refutes and corrects those who are in error. Let me ask you again, when you think of the word elder, what do you think of? Did you notice that age wasn't one of the qualifications that was listed by Paul to Titus? The most important factor for a congregation considering men who are qualified as elders is the standard of godliness that he holds up in his word. The standard of godliness and being above reproach in marriage and parenting, in character and conduct, and in devotion to the unchanging word of God. These are the characteristics which God says are important in the life of an elder, an overseer, and of his people isn't this what all of us are called to each of these areas in a christian's life are on display every day and god's standard for all of us especially those who are elders and overseers is to be blameless without blemish not without blemish but blameless we're to do this first for commending a witness to the gospel, to the world, right? Church, we're to be the salt and light. We are to reflect the image of Christ in the world. We are to take the gospel message and go into the world, sharing and spreading the the, the word of Christ. 
living for him. We are to prove that the transformative power of the gospel of Christ works in our lives so that others see how the gospel is changing us, shaping us and molding us. And so this is this is prompted by the gospel work within our lives as the gospel is heard and lived and believed and meditated on. As we we study God's word and learn it, this is God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit shaping us and and transforming us and teaching us how to follow him. And then secondly, elders are to be a godly model within the church. And thirdly, this morning, thirdly, because elders serve as guardians of the church. We see this in verses 10 through 16. This is what they do. They are to serve as guardians of the church, as models of godliness. We see who elders are, but as guardians of the church, we see what they what they do. They guard the church from false doctrine, from false teaching, from those who would come in and, and would take advantage of the church, from those who would who would intersect or, or uh, interject lies within within the hearts or the minds of, of God's people, even throughout the week as we're rubbing shoulders with the world. Or as we hear false preachers on TV preaching a false narrative, a false gospel about what salvation is. Trusting in self, self-sufficiency. That our lives are meant to be prosperous. That we, that we must be happy all the time as believers. And so the point is that elders are set in place, even here in Crete, to guard the body, to guard the church, to teach sound doctrine. You see, they're entrusted by God to protect the church from the deadly effects of false teaching and wayward doctrine. And as guardians, as as stewards of the church, elders teach and guard God's people by his authority under his care. So the first thing we see Paul telling Timothy in verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they what they ought not to teach. We see the character and the conduct of the elders contrasted with the character and conduct of false teachers in verse verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And so Paul tells them to silence them. Because they're teaching things that are causing division and wreaking havoc within the body. They were taking advantage of the church. They were stirring up controversies. Secondly, he tells them in verses 12 through 14 to rebuke, rebuke them sharply. As guardians of the church, they're to rebuke sharply. Look, one of the Cretans, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, he says, verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The point of the sharp rebuke in verse 13 is so that those who are falling prey to the false teaching would see that rebuke. And they would understand the heresy that's being taught and that they might come to sound faith. Because those who follow, who were following were turning away from the truth. And so Paul is sending Titus to appoint elders in Crete so that they could guard the gospel, guard the people of the church and guard their faith and instruct them and teach them sound doctrine. 
Thirdly, we see in verses 15 and 16 that as guardians of the church, they're to confront errors with the gospel. The false teachers lacked purity. They they were hypocrites. Verse 15 points out the moral character of a person without Christ is ultimately defiled and impure. And what he's saying is purity that counts before God only comes through faith in Christ. So to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So this is why Paul commends Titus to appoint men of blameless character and conduct who are devoted to the word. The reason is because they'll confront false teaching with the truth of the gospel. And so verse 16 warns us against hypocrisy in our own lives and in our own teaching. He says they claim to know God in their words, but their lives proved otherwise. This is the exact opposite of the godly standard of elders and overseers that God expects of those in his church. This is the exact opposite of what we as believers are to live out. Our faith is to be lived out so that we're not considered or called hypocrites, but so that we are able to give a great display, a great portrait of what godliness looks like in the lives of God's people. And so elders are called as models of godliness to God's people. They're recognized by the church as men who are above reproach in marriage and family, in conduct and behavior, and in devotion to the word. They're men who protect and serve as guardians of the church. But listen, all believers are called to lives of godliness. All believers are called to have a growing faith, to have time where they're spending uh, time in the word, knowing the Lord, growing in this relationship of faith and trusting in God, learning how the truth of God's word impacts our lives and changes us. This is the hope of the gospel and the spirit that has been deposited within us as believers. And so all believers, not just elders and overseers, all believers are called to exemplary lives of godliness. I wonder this morning, are there godly men who are desiring this work of an overseer within Crosspoint? Are there godly men that God is doing this work in your heart, in your life? And you've, you've seen maybe some of these things that aren't to characterize a life of godliness. And you've also seen this portrait of things that are to characterize a life of godliness. And you say, okay, God, I, I realize those areas in my life that need some work. I realize the, the way that I'm not pursuing godliness. Or maybe, wife, you've thought about your husband in the midst of this and your prayer needs to be for him that God would God would work in his life and and flesh out that which he is calling him to do our woman within the congregation ladies God is calling you to a life of godliness to grow in your faith in your walk with Christ to not just exist day in and day out but to really pursue what a a growing relationship with Christ looks like? Our children, 
that you would take notice in the home of the way that the gospel is transforming your parents when you see them pray for you, when you see them lead you. And our prayer is that God would open your eyes to the truth of the gospel and that God would cause you to see your need for him and your salvation. So this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to listen. Listen to what God is calling you to do. Repent of those areas where you've been holding out from God. Surrender to Him. Walk in the joy that comes from being in right fellowship with God. Walk in the joy that comes from a life that pursues holiness and godliness. It's not boring. It's joyful. It's, it's, it's amazing to pursue godliness and to, to sense being right in the presence of where God wants you to be. I want to exhort you this morning to do that. Pursue him. Surrender those things that you're hanging on to. Pursue him. Don't let anything hold you back and encumber you and drag you into a life of sin. Pursue Christ this morning. Let us all grow in godliness. Let me pray for us this morning. And you respond as the Lord is leading you. Father, as we think about, even in preparation for partaking of the Lord's Supper, as we think about what it means to grow in godliness, oh Lord, we pray, I pray, would you, would you cause our hearts to embrace and have this, this hunger and desire for growing in, in godliness and growing in your word. And Lord, would you, would you strengthen us to exercise discipline in our lives? To, to put things in place so that we don't stumble and fall and to be self-controlled and to, to master the flesh and be mastered by you only. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us today to live for you, to love you, to walk with you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.